Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host of Dark Poutine. With me as usual is my good friend, co-host, sound guy, and the jazziest man I know. Jazziest? Scott Hemingway. He's doing jazz hands right now. Some would say that I'm a jazz... Yeah, I'm not gonna... Loon? Jazz loon. You're a jazz loon. Yeah, dot, dot, dot. Uh, I'm not at all jazzy, if we're being honest. No. I uh, uh, lack... Any intangible jazz he, he skills. Has, he has no rhythm. Well, come on. I wasn't going to go that far. I'm pretty rhythmic. Okay. But are you explosive? Have you seen me dance? Are you athletic or are you explosive? Oh, Joe Rogan comment. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm neither. Neither? I'm, I'm implosive. Okay. So anyway, uh, interestingly, um, Scott doesn't know this because I haven't told him this yet, but uh, Mm -hmm. one of my wife's friends goes to a quilting group and they were talking about dark poutine at the quilting group. Get out of here. Yeah. For real. Yeah, for real. So it's like, it's weird when it comes back to me that that somebody is talking about our show uh, and we have no idea why. And they're just like some little old ladies quilting, <laughs> listening to us to talk about murders. It's fantastic. <laughs> These little, uh, little did your wife know she's surrounded by a bunch of potential psychopaths. Well. No? No, she's definitely aware. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm sorry, uh, crochet ladies. Yeah. Or needing ladies. No, we, we love you and thank you yeah. for, for listening to us. It's really a, a really wicked thing It to just hear. blows me away yeah. that anybody listens to us at all. Yeah. Like Scott doesn't even listen. <laughs> I, I, I edit the audio uh, in, on mute. On mute. <laughs> you know, just like, I guess it's the where I think edits should be. Okay. That might make a lot more sense when people listen to us. It would probably sound better. <laughs> Okay. I think he just muted what I just said there. <laughs> anyway, uh, we have some Patreon shout outs again. Uh, wow. So we have three new patrons, Yasmin, Marcy, and Steph. Thank you for your pledges. We really appreciate it. If you are somebody who is so inclined, uh, you can donate to us uh, at patreon.com slash dark poutine or send us some donut money via PayPal at our email, uh, Dark Poutine Podcast at gmail.com. Body pillow hugs coming for oh, you. I don't know. I don't know. I can't find a place that makes swag body pillows. Well, it sounds to me like you've given up already, Mike. I have not. Our, our listeners demand more. They expect more. They want Mike. shirts that say Yumber Yard on them. <laughs> don't let our listeners down, Mike. I'll try. So anyway, let's get... try to let them down. <laughs> I'll try not to. Yeah, whatever. Let's get to it. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes, listener discretion, and often a sense of humor is strongly advised. Your hosts are in no way experts on any of the topics we present, 
nor are we professional journalists, especially Scott. We just want to entertain you with the stories we tell. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. A yubble-yubble. made it to episode 13. I'm not superstitious, but we have sprinkled a circle of salt around ourselves. I've also been chewing catnip, as according to some Wiccans, doing so will provide courage, daring, fierceness, and protection. The problem is our stupid cats won't leave us alone now. That was my kitty Donner, the toothless wonder. Oh, he's, he's sweet. He's, he's got no teeth, so when he shakes his head, his tongue flies out of his... His face and just kind of hangs down over his lip. As it should. Well, you know. So this story is going to be a quick one because I couldn't find a lot of evidence. I couldn't dig much up on it. This story brings us back to Vancouver. Uh, Stanley Park in particular for a still unsolved and tragic case that has been referred to as Vancouver's case of the babes in the woods. Not not the babes, some of you may think. Not that kind of babes, like children. Remember when we said no more ch- child murder episodes? I know, it just keeps coming up. We're doing another child murder episode. Yeah. So anyway, Stanley Park has been referred to as the jewel of uh, Vancouver and was named the top park in the world by TripAdvisor readers in 2014. The park is a beautiful place nestled at the northwestern edge of Vancouver, offering stunning views of the Pacific Ocean, Lionsgate Bridge, and north and west Vancouver along its famed seawall walk. If solitude is more your jam and trees and such, you can take a leisurely walk through Stanley Park's densely wooded walking trails. The list of things to see and do in Stanley Park seems endless. Aquarium, uh, there used to be a zoo. Uh, Those things are shrinking, though, Uh, but there's tons and tons to see in there. It's kind of neat to go to the the empty zoo. It's, you know, kind of like a... a, There's a lot of abandoned stuff there, like an empty bear... uh, it's kind of enclosure. weird. It yeah. is. It yeah, is. It's a little eerie. It is, especially having been a kid and gone there so much to see it all empty now. It's weird. Yeah. So if you're planning to take a trip to Vancouver, uh, Stanley Park is definitely a place you should put on your list. This 405 hectare park sits on traditional Coast Salish land and according to archaeological evidence has been used by various indigenous peoples for at least 3,000 mm. years. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a long time. That is. So the first Europeans set foot on the peninsula in the 1790s, and that would have been uh, Captain Vancouver himself. Oh, is that who it's named after? Surprise. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, everybody knows North America was found by Jonathan Vaughn, North America. Okay. Right. Eventually, due to its strategic... I just tolerate you. You know this. So do I. Uh, Eventually, due to its strategic position offering protection of the Port of Vancouver through the First Narrows, Stanley Park became a military reserve and the Naval Reserve Division HMCS Discovery still sits on Dead Man's Island. In 1886, the military reserve was leased by the city of Vancouver for use as a park. 
1888, the park officially opened and was named after Lord Stanley, who was then Canada's sixth Governor General. He's also famous for having donated the original trophy known as the Stanley Cup. (sighs) Yeah, exactly. Handed down to the National Hockey League eventually, and it happens to be one of the most awesome-looking trophies in all sports. Oh, hell yeah. I've had my hands on that thing. I think I have. Yeah. I, there's a picture of me somewhere being a goof when the, it was in town for the Olympics. You don't say. Right. Mike being a goof. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, since their formation in 1970, the city's NHL team, the Vancouver Canucks, have never won the trophy. Although they came close in 1994, oh. Scott's favorite oh, year. Oh my God, everything. It's everything. And 2011, with both Game 7 losses ending in downtown riots that damaged properties and embarrassed the city. Yeah, I I remember both of these riots vividly. Yep. Did not participate. Nope. Because I'm a good boy. Canadians aren't always nice or sorry. That is, no, there's video evidence that we aren't. Absolutely. Especially that one guy holding the hockey stick and then kicking the bank window oh, in. It, they, they, we could do a whole other episode on, on the, it, it was a fascinating because of the time and place. The two and, riots, the two <clears throat> Vancouver yeah. Canuck riots. Oh, yeah, well, and, and the second one is, is very fascinating due to the uh, amount of videotaped evidence that were, was out there that led to a lot of convictions. Yep. And so it was just kind of a new thing. Let's get back to Stanley Park. Stanley Park. Okay. So Stanley Park does have a rich, dark poutine-worthy history, other than today's case. There are many unmarked graves around Brockton Point in Mm. the aptly named uh, Dead Man's Island. Mm. In 1889, the park board began evicting people who were living in the park. Yes, there were some houses there still. Uh, Some of the language in the next quote is racist, outright racist, Mm. I am going to call it that, and reflects another darker and more ignorant time in Canadian history. Yes, we we did have that as well. Yes. The quote comes from the paper Creature Comforts, remaking the animal landscape of Vancouver Stanley Park, 1887 to 1911, by Sean Carrage, a University of Toronto historian. Sarah Avison the daughter of the first park ranger, recalled the fate of some of these homes when the city evicted the Chinese settlers at Anderson Point in 1889. And remember, this is a quote, these are not my words. So please do not tweet me and say I'm a racist piece of crap because I said that, because I'm not. Nope. The park board ordered the Chinamen to leave the park. They were trespassers, but the Chinamen would not go. So the park board told my father to set fire to the buildings. Well, that sounded Jeez. nice. I saw them burn. There were five of us children, and you know what children are like when there is a fire. So father set fire to the shacks. What happened to the Chinese, I do not know. Interesting times. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Stanley Park has also been the site of some gangland battles. Uh, I remember the Vietnamese gangs having a bit of a shootout up near the Oval one time. Well, if you're going to have a shootout, why not in the nicest park in the world? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, the secluded park has also been the scene of many murders, including that of uh, a notorious one of Aaron Webster, who was stalked and beaten to death by a group of men uh, for the crime of being a gay man, presumably looking for love one night in the park. Yeah, I remember that. That was really tra- really tragic. Really Horrible. A really, really sad case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the Stanley Park Six. They were six police officers who in early 2003 
took two suspected drug dealers out to the park and beat them quite badly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two of the officers were eventually fired and the others were suspended and an inquiry was called into the events. Yeah, also a very heavily publicized thing and a disgusting act. Yep. Yeah, so everybody keeps thinking, oh, Canada's so nice. We're so nice up here. We just take people out and beat them. But we do it in parks. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's least as rustic. <laughs> That's right. The beatings are rustic. That's right. And all done with hockey sticks. <sighs> That's not true. They did it with boots and their fists and, and uh, their billy clubs. And hockey sticks. I doubt it. Yeah. So, you know, we could do our long podcasts on all these subjects, but... Uh, the case we're looking at this time is a little more uh, disturbing, again, because it involves children. Mm-hmm. But this one really stuck with me. Like I'd been, I'd seen it come up a few times and I, I've wanted yep. to do it uh, to, for us to talk about it. So this is it. Yep. Our story begins in 1953, just over 65 years ago. On uh, January 14th. A Vancouver Parks Board worker named Albert Tong was helping to clear brush for the prevention of forest fires. No, he was not Smokey the Bear. His name was Albert Tong. (laughs) Deep in the park, about halfway between the Lionsgate Bridge and Beaver Lake. As he stepped on something under the brush that cracked loudly under his weight. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Clearing the brush and debris away, he found what he had stepped on was a human skull. Yes. Investigating the find further, he was horrified to find two skeletons covered by a woman's fur coat. What a terrible, terrible thing to have to... Can you imagine you're just like out raking leaves and you you find that? No, I can't. No. Uh, Tong didn't report his discovery until early the next day, Hmm. and his motives for keeping his horrible secret are not known. But, like, I mean, if you see that, you're probably in shock a little bit. Yeah, and again, very different time. Yeah. And so who knows, like... Maybe they were something like, maybe it was like uh, he had stumbled across a native burial ground or... Yeah, and you can't just go and Google. Right. And, or maybe he thought that he would be blamed for what he had found. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to know, but... uh, Yeah. Vancouver police officers were shown the area the next day and began their investigation. After clearing away what appeared to be a few years of detritus, uh, they discovered the remains of two children. They were assumed to be of different ages, as one was a bit larger than the other. The smaller skeleton was lying face down, its skull wearing a World War II leather airman's cap. Lots of kids wore those in those days. And there was another matching leather cap nearby the second larger skeleton with a set of aviator goggles. Both were still wearing their shoes and clad in decomposing clothing. A lunchbox with rotted contents was also found between the bodies. So like a metal lunchbox, they opened it up and there's this rotted goo, their Mm -hmm. lunch. Along with the uh, fur coat that had been covering the bones, the police found a single uh, size seven and a half woman's penny loafer. Hmm. The most telling was the discovery of an 11 centimeter wide shingler's hatchet with a broken handle. So it's like a, it's like a, an ax with like a hammer on the, uh, on the other end. I would imagine by the name for a, a, a tradesman who, you know, works in roofing. I would yep. imagine for uh, putting shingles, cutting shingles and putting them in place. Right. After all the evidence was gathered... <laughs> 
It was brought to the city morgue. Uh, the coroner and pathologist undertook putting things back together as best they could to try and determine what had happened to these two kids. The plate of the hatchet was compared to wounds on the skull of one, and uh, it fit perfectly. The other body sustained wounds that appeared to match the hammer end of the hatchet. Mm. And police also thought, uh, I, I, didn't, I know I didn't write this in my show, show notes, but I remember it now, um, that because of the lightness of the blows, they thought that a woman had done it for sure, mm. which I, I don't, you know... I don't think I think I didn't write it because it sounded sexist to me at the time. It, it doesn't hold water now. Uh, no. But I back then, again, very different times. And their, yeah. their scientific methods were far, far different. Yeah, like not scientific at all. Yeah. Really? Uh, yeah. Although unable to determine the exact cause of death due to the state of decomposition, uh, a decent assumption could be made that the hatchet was the murder weapon, of course. Mm-hmm. Early on, it was assumed that the smaller of the two skeletons belonged to a girl and the larger was a boy, and that both were between the ages of seven and ten years old. But no one had reported a a boy and a girl between seven and ten missing. Mm. So cops didn't have a lot to go on, and these bodies had been there clearly for a few years as they were skeletized completely. Yep. Uh, So what did they have? They had two dead children, a woman's shoe, uh, and a coat as well as the presumed murder weapon. They had like their lunchbox, shoes, clothes, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. But who were they? And who did this to them? I don't know. Exactly. Oh, I thought you were specifically asking. No, I, I thought I was supposed you. to solve it no, right that, now. That's called a rhetorical question. It's uh, a big word. Yes. Police called upon respected forensic anthropologist Erna Engel Beiersdorf who had survived both Auschwitz and Buchenwald concentration camps during the last year of World War II. She had moved to Vancouver a short time after her release. Vancouver is a much nicer place than those two places where she had been. You don't say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a bold statement. Well, you know what? And I will stand by that. <laughs> Bearsdorf uh, made casts of the skulls and began to work the tedious reconstruction of the faces of the two children in plaster. And so there are pictures on the internet uh, you can see uh, with these um, these two faces. And mm-hmm. I'll link to those in the show notes for people. Uh, not only was the time of death hard to determine, given the science at the time and the state of decomposition, even the year had eluded police. So they had to go looking at different things other than the actual bodies. Mm. And so they looked into the clothing. Uh, it was determined that the crime had to have taken place after World War II, as the shoes the children had on were not available until after the war and around 1947. Hmm. Interesting. That's what they thought at the time. Yeah. Uh, the, the size of the woman's shoe and her coat painted a hazy portrait of someone stocky around 5'3 and weighing between 125 and 135 pounds. Again, not much to point to anyone in particular. Nope. Just more pieces of an unsolvable puzzle. The police reconstructed the entire boy's outfit using clothing from the Woodward's department store. Remember that place? Oh, I do. Yeah, yeah. quite quite well. It's still there now. It's uh, it's kind of like a... It's a housing like condominium. Like a co-op <laughs> yep. condominium thing. Uh, so they placed the clothing on a mannequin for photographs in the hope that if they released it in their annual report... And the newspapers, uh, it would jog someone's memory. 
maybe someone had seen these kids with their aviator caps around the park in 1947. But those caps, as I mentioned, were really common at the time. And it's pretty good for the time. That's a pretty good uh, technique to try to uh, seek out some. Sure. Uh, yeah. With, with what they tips. had. Yeah. They couldn't post it on Facebook. No. Uh, tips poured in from all over the nation after newspapers got a hold of the photos and the story. And obviously people are always compelled to uh, try to help if children are involved. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Over 100 people had claimed to seen a pair of children in the park in 1947. And no, <laughs> yes. I'm I, sorry, I'm, I'm laughing, but I'm, yeah, I think. I'm pretty sure that you, if you, I went to the park today, I would see a pair of children there. No, you'd probably see half an hour, or you'd probably see 100 within half an hour. Of being there. Correct. Not in a calendar year. Right. So I don't know. I don't know. It depends on it. Maybe there was only 300 people in BC at the time. I don't think that it, the population has grown that much. Hmm. One tip did stand out. Uh, a woman from West Vancouver had, who had kept a meticulous diary over the years was breaking up with her boyfriend at the time. And she claimed she remembered seeing a woman and two children walking in the park. She noticed the woman was carrying a small hatchet and was wearing a coat like the one police had found with the bodies. As the witness and her fiancé walked by her, they heard the woman call one of the boys Ronnie or Rodney. Hmm. That was very, seems like some very... Uh, Detailed. Yeah. yeah. So from Eve Lazarus' book, Cold Case Vancouver, uh, I did use this book a lot in my research. I had to, because... She, she's done the most detailed work on mm -hmm. this, for sure, that I could find. Uh, the witness and her fiancé had continued to walk toward Prospect Point. And on their way back, later that afternoon, she saw the woman running from the old zoo cages. Mm -hmm. This time, the woman had no coat and was wearing only one shoe. She was alone. Wow, that's quite, you know, quite the... Uh, amazing coincidence you yep. saw coming in and going out. Because of the clothing, which she described down to the aviator-style leather caps, the estimation of the date of death, the ages of the children, and what investigators thought was a credible eyewitness account, police focused their murder investigation on October 5th, 1947. Hmm. So thanks, Eve Lazarus, for that little quote. Yeah. However, the tips led nowhere. Uh, all promising leads were explained away. And I mean, there were many, there mm -hmm. were legion. They, they investigated missing children up and down the coast mm. and across the country. Eventually the bones of the children and the evidence picked up at the scene were put into storage and in the basement of Vancouver's coroner court. Uh, that's downtown on Cordova. Eventually it, it, all of this ended up on display in the Vancouver police museum. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, hmm. so the actual bones of the children. Yeah. Uh, yep. fascinating, but also, mm, uh, macabre. Uh, yeah. And unsettling. Yep. Various people took on investigating the case over the years with no success. Uh, in 1996, detective Sergeant Brian Honeyburn, having free reign to investigate any cold cases he wished, wanted to have another look at the case. This one had always interested him. So Honeyburn collected the bones and took them to the University of British Columbia, where world-renowned forensic dentist Dr. David Sweet was able to extract DNA from teeth in the two skulls using a process that he had recently perfected. The DNA test showed the victims were not a boy and girl, but two boys. 
Over the years, police had been chasing tips about a missing boy and girl, but tended not to investigate tips about two boys. Hmm. So, hmm. there you go. Yeah. It's it's strange how, like, one little thing can send you off in the, in the wrong direction. It's a pretty substantial plot twist. Well, here's another thing. Oh. Honeyburn also looked into the West Vancouver woman's story and found out that she had lied. It couldn't be determined for sure, but it was presumed she wanted to inject herself into the case for attention. So here we go. So they talk to this lady in the 50s, and she tells them what she says that she saw. And it's not found out until 1996 that she was lying. Yeah, so, you know, for decades completely through... Yeah, like the, the, the case is off in this yeah. weird direction because... Just because she wanted some this, attention. this dum-dum wanted attention. Yep. So, what, like, what possibilities for evidence could have been missed? Right. Or was missed? Or maybe, you know, like maybe one of the tips got discounted because of, yep. it didn't match what she yep. said. Yep. Selfish. Yep. Uh, so, this obviously threw the timeline into doubt again. Yep. Another witness came forward with a similar story to the West Vancouver person, but it was determined he wasn't in the park until at least 1951. And the evidence indicated the boys had been there years before. So this guy claimed he saw a similar thing. Mm-hmm. You know, woman running, one shoe. Yep. Yeah. All things that are were available in the newspaper. But, and, and this is, this is what... The Vancouver woman, uh, the West Vancouver woman apparently made all that up yeah. from, from stuff that yeah. she had read in the paper. Yeah. Another reason was why a lot of those details get held back nowadays. That's right. Yep. Exactly. That hold back evidence. Yep. We've talked about that on a few of our podcasts. Yep. So, you know, here we are. Another witness who wasn't really there. Yep. So the case really, really kind of went cold. Uh, it's still unsolved. Uh, and although he's retired, uh, it's still on Brian Honeyburn's mind. He eventually had the boys cremated in mm. the late 1990s. Mm. And here's a bit from an article in, uh, the 2014 issue of the province by Glenn Schaefer. Honeyburn, uh, then took a police boat out into the ocean near Kitts Beach, where he scattered their ashes. He said that the fact that the annual children's festival was taking place at the time was a nice coincidence. He said, I got some criticism for doing that, and some people asked me why I didn't scatter their ashes in Stanley Park, but I told them, these kids were murdered there. Why would they want to be buried there? He said, I guess you can't please everyone. I totally get where he's coming from. Right? I totally get that. I, I mean, it's, it's heartwarming that he cared so much. Yeah. Right? Well, I, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of police officers, like, especially when it comes to cases with kids. Yeah. I know uh, I watch uh, Homicide Hunter. Yep. Same. With with Joe Kenda. Kenda. I love that guy. Yeah, uh, he's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm going to I'm going to see if I can meet the guy who plays Kenda when I go to CrimeCon in May. But he's going to be there. <laughs> I don't think Joe's going to be there himself. I would just crap my pants if he was. <laughs> I would feel the same. But come on, his hair though. It's it's not good. Like me, it's like, like Stephen Harper's hair. <laughs> we'll make an episode about Joe Kenda's Joe hair. Joe Kenda's, but he's not Canadian. <laughs> well, well, his name sounds kind of Kenda, Canada. Well, we have talked about it now. So anyway, from the same article, uh, Honeyburn found recently that the particular style of shoe the boys were wearing was in fact available here prior to the war. Hmm. Again. That whole other... Yep. Yeah. Which left the possibility that they were killed earlier. 
That took him back to a previously discounted witness account of an incident in 1944, still in the files. This is interesting. So, in May 1944, there was a sailor from Esquimalt and his fiancée walking along the seawall when a woman crashed out of the bush in front of them, wearing just one shoe and no coat, and letting out a guttural sound, according to the report at the time. She took off running. So this is from 1944. It gives me shivers. Right? I got a chill. So this crazy, crazed woman comes crashing out of the bushes. Hollyburn has passed his information on to uh, Vancouver police, who would be able to check for school attendance records to find out if a pair of boys went missing in May 1944. His hope is that they can come up with a name find some living relative, and try for a DNA match to finally identify Mm, the boys. He said, I still think about it, and it would be the right thing to do, even at this time, to identify those little boys. At least let's do that for them. This fella seems like a good good man. A good egg, yeah. Yeah, he's not a bad apple. He's a good egg. Yeah. So, yeah, there, you, you know, and that was 2014. We haven't heard anything else, and I can find no other updates uh, on the case since. Hmm. Um, I kind of want to start to, uh, I might want to do a little bit of an update on this one if I can get a hold of somebody in, in the Vancouver Police Department. Apparently there's a phone number you can call about this case. Hmm. What, are your, what, are your, what are you wanting to look into? Uh, just to see if they've actually looked into the DNA. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, because I, you know, there's 23andMe and MyHeritage and all those kind of sites. You can actually upload your DNA. I've hmm. done it. Hmm. Uh, I got my DNA done at uh, 23andMe and, and I found out I'm 1.1% uh, sub-Saharan African, which is interesting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. No, you can't. No. <laughs> no. But, uh, but uh, yeah, so there's... There's those kind of things, um, and they could at least find somebody who may be a close relative or something. That's quite fascinating, actually. It's not not something that I I don't think would have ever occurred to me, but it just seems so uh, like that just makes sense. Yeah, to check into. Yeah, well, who knows? Hmm. Maybe they'll do it. Maybe they've done it, and I just don't know about it yet. That's true. Yeah. So the person responsible for these heinous crimes is probably long gone, because if it happened in 1944, chances are that person is, is either dead or very old. Oh, yes. But, so these little boys will most likely never see justice or even be identified. Hmm. I'm, I kind of hope that they figure it out sometime. Oh, absolutely. I mean, maybe DNA... Science gets even better over the next few years, and it's it's very easy. I don't know. The thought that two uh, young boys were murdered in, in the park, potentially by their mother, yeah. by anybody, but uh, and, and they're just like they were murdered there and abandoned and left. They're just alone. to be unknown, yeah. alone is yeah. really, really. It's sad. It's a really sad thought. Yes, I mean, obviously some people believe that uh, the mother was the murderer of the boys and they think maybe she was desperate and poor, maybe even a prostitute Hmm. and at the end of her rope and could figure out no other options. We'll never know, I don't think. This, I mean, it's happened so long ago. We've seen pretty crazy uh, unsolved cold cases get solved though from uh, quite some time. So uh, is it likely? No. 
Uh, would I love to see it happen? Yes. So there's another unsolved case, interestingly, in uh, in Eve Lazarus's book. I didn't go into this story. I didn't even read the story yet because I'm not quite done her book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, this guy's name was Roddy Moore, and he was seven, right? Seven mm-hmm. years old. Mm-hmm. He was found murdered on October 17th, 1947. And he didn't arrive at his school. So he went to school, uh, Begbie Elementary School at Rupert and East 8th in Vancouver. But interestingly, the date is what really got me is mm-hmm. October 17, 1947, a seven-year-old child dies. The original thought was that the murders of these two young boys in Stanley Park, our babes in the woods, um, actually happened on October 5th, 1947. So, hmm. You know? Interesting. Interesting. I don't know. Like, you know, it just, so was there a serial killer in Vancouver who was stalking and killing kids? Maybe the the mother thing is a complete red herring. Well, I mean. It, com- maybe it keeps at, coming up. Maybe at the end I'll give my thoughts. I'll go all John Douglas on this and give my thoughts. Oh, this should be interesting. Will be. Doubt sure. me. Doubt me. I doubt you. There's no, there's no actual evidence to put all that together, but considering age, sex, victim, uh, you know, and the timing, it's just interesting. It's something that I think should or should have been looked into or was looked at, but I mean, it's something I understand that there is, there should be some linkage there that yes. So you want serial killers. You want to talk about that? Well, here's an interesting link to this case. Speaking of serial killers... One of the people who called in a tip about a a pair of missing children in New Westminster was the mother of somebody who was seven years old at the time, and his name was Clifford Olson. Clifford Olson happens to be the the serial killer who murdered 11 local children here in British Columbia and in this neighborhood, Uh, and he would become known as the Beast of BC in the 1980s. Jesus, that's... So there's no irony there at all. That, that, like... It also, yeah. again, it's like, what a small country Canada really is. Yeah. It's, you know, it's crazy that that keeps, you know, we're large land-wise, but people-wise, we're very small. Yeah, ma- yeah. yeah mass-wise, population-wise, we're yeah. uh, all located in very... Uh, Concentrated areas it, yeah. around the border of the United States. <laughs> Says something. Anyway, it's those Americans. It's sure. their fault. We might, we might. America is not, We Canada is not America's hat. America is Canada's pants. It's deep. That is deep. It's deep. Just changed everything I thought about uh, in, in the globe. So much, like I've mentioned, much of the research from this book, or from this episode came from Eve Lazarus's deliciously creepy true crime book, Cold Case Vancouver, The City's Most Baffling Unsolved Murders. Her account of the babes in the woods is the most comprehensive I could find, uh, and there are other cases in her book that we might actually tackle. Uh, so it's definitely worth a read. You can snag it via a link in our show notes and send Eve a tweet at Eve Lazarus. She follows us. Cool. Yeah. Wow, that's really nice. That is nice. As well, the Vancouver Police Museum has a wonderful permanent exhibit dedicated to the babes in the woods. And the exhibit features Erna Beersdorf's casts of the children's skulls, replicas of their bones, and other evidence found at the crime scene, uh, including the hatchet. Hmm. 
Yeah, so. It would be kind of fascinating to check out. Yeah, I've been there. Have uh, you? A, f- a friend of mine actually used to be the curator oh. of the Vancouver Police Museum, so he showed me stuff that they don't display typically, and I oh, think wow. that the children's actual bones may not have been actually on display. I don't know if, because I was never there uh, during that time. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I got to see some interesting things. He let me hold a hand grenade. <laughs> that the police had had had, uh, had taken. So, yeah, there's a picture of me on the internet with a hand grenade somewhere. Just one? Just one. Just one picture? Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, I look kind of like uh, that Steve, I was doing the impression of Steve Carell in, in Anchorman holding the grenade in front of him. Ah, I got yeah. you. Yeah, yeah I'm, that was fun. Yeah, sure. So that's it for the case of the Babes in the Woods. I, I'd like, I'd love to be able to, to, to help to solve one of these cases one day, you know, like to, to actually get into, into looking into research. Yeah. Yeah. It would be, there would be a, a great sense of accomplishment in being able to, uh, solve something that's caused so much pain to people. Yeah. You yeah. Know, so here, or to, more, more for the, just to, you know, let those kids rest. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean in, in, yeah. in some sense, the accomplishment yeah. of yeah. bringing a conclusion to something that's created so much confusion. Yeah. I just rapped. <sighs> okay. You want, you want. What, you know? what was your rap name again? It was Crazy 8. Crazy 8? Yeah. I'm MC Milkbone, just MC so everybody, Milkbone. everybody yeah. knows. Crazy 8. Seriously? Yeah, that was it. Yeah. And that was Great Scott, of course, but. Great Scott. My, my rapping days are decades uh, gone. We're grateful for that. So am I, trust me. <laughs> you didn't have to hear me. I did. So, yeah. Vanilla, okay. vanilla iced tea over here. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so let, let me, hear my thoughts on this. Yeah. You know, on this case. So, yeah, I'll preface it again. These are just... Uh, uh, I'm not qualified in any way to be able to have this taken seriously, but uh, but I've read John Douglas books. Oh god! So I, I'm pretty much here. We go. I'm pretty much a profiler. He's also read The Hot Zone. I have. Oh, <laughs> you pretty much know my entire reading history. I know <laughs> these books. Okay, so here's my theory on it. So. Um, I, I do think it was a personal murder. I do think that the uh, person who committed the crime uh, was the children were known to that person, and most likely uh, I was a parent. And I say that due to the fact that a few things: uh, one of the bodies was face down, uh, and they were covered with a blanket. Typically, when uh, a parent or sibling or somebody close to the victim commits a crime like that, commits, murders the person, there's immediate remorse. There's immediate uh, yep. sense of uh, a guilt. And a lot of the times they're going to turn the body over. They're going to cover it with a blanket, cover it with something so that they, it's not looking at them. Yeah. Because, they, you know, the, that sense of guilt and remorse is, is massive. And so they'll cover them up so they can't be seen. Mm-hmm. So that goes to show that there is most likely remorse involved sure uh and and then just you have to kind of look at what's there if it is a a woman's jacket yeah it was a woman's shoe yeah uh 
Well, who's to say maybe she wasn't taken from the scene and murdered too? You know, maybe it was a man. This seems like a very, very, uh, uh, you would have left the, that, that person there as well in all likelihood to be murdered, but it, it seems a very personal, uh, you know, with a a big place. It, It is, it is. Um, but I think also if you factor in the hatchet, like that's a, that's a tradesman's, uh, tool at that time. Yeah. Uh, and so also they would have, although that you, a lot of employment would have been in the trades uh, industries at those times. So that doesn't necessarily narrow too much down, but, um, you know, so probably, uh, people who, uh, a family that isn't well off, you know, isn't affluent, uh, probably lived nearby because we're talking, what year was it? 50 something? Yeah. Well, they were found in 53. Okay. So pre-53, uh, the park at that point in time, wouldn't, you're not going to walk there with your family from Burnaby yeah, or, or Richmond or something. Yep, you enough. would have had to have been local and knowing the park pretty well to be able to get to that specific location where it's remote enough. So they would have been local to the area. Definitely you, you're a, you're a profiler. I told you, I read these books, man. You, you read John Give me my respect, Mike. Okay. This is what this is why I don't read books very often, because I'm like I I become the book, Mike. Oh god. And I can't I can't my my brain can only handle so much knowledge. We need to give you like something that you can make us lots of money with. Like I I'll give you an Anthony Robbins book, <laughs> and then you then you can be like mm. uh, like Jack Black, call you banana fingers. <laughs> get that reference at all okay but the, i think my 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 uh I, my suggestions here my my theory i, I think there's no, some i think there's, I think there's some, some weight yeah. to it yep. um but i'm i couldn't feel more confident that uh the investigators uh, who who looked into it what was his name honey something honeyburn honeyburn yeah i'm sure he has looked into and thought these same things sure, and either ruled yes. them out or included them and yeah. continued to look along that line. But, uh, you know, I, I'm always fascinated by, uh, criminal profiling because I think how you can, how they're able to create such elaborate profiles. A picture, they paint a picture with. with Based on yeah. the crime scene evidence. And yep. it's not kind of like, oh, I get a feel that this person is, oh, uh, my senses are telling they're me they drove a van. <laughs> no, which oddly Although we success. But, yeah. but it, it's not about feelings. It's about analyzing the crime scene scientifically mm-hmm. and coming up with often very, very, very accurate profiles. And I just did that. You're welcome. Excellent. Drop the mic. Drop the mic. Yeah. Well, the mic is here. Oh yeah, I didn't drop it. You can still hear me. So that's it for this episode <laughs> of Dark Poutine. No, that's only the beginning of my thing. No, I'm oh, kidding. God, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm, I'm ready to go to sleep. <laughs> so check out our website, uh, www.darkpoutine.com for show notes and for other cool stuff, like links to the things that we were talking about, some photos, uh, uh, some, you can see the plaster casts of the kids' mm. faces and those kind of things. Uh, if you have any cool, uh, story ideas, questions, comments, or just want to say hi, you can reach us via email at darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and communicate with us there. Just search for Dark Poutine and tell your friends about us. Uh, our 
closed discussion group on uh, Facebook is getting quite active. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool folks in there. Yeah, it's really, it's really, uh, uh, really quite amazing to see this little community building around us and uh, very engaging people. Yeah, very entertaining people. Very, very cool really, folks. Really, really awesome group of people. It must be like attracts like because we're no. No, don't. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, we're pretty. We're pretty lame. <laughs> once, <laughs> once they see past the curtain, I think. Yeah, <laughs> the, well, these guys are just losers. Yeah, I think. I think, <laughs> I think they feel sorry for us. Well, I'll take it. Mike. That's actually what I've thought. It's uh, like, oh, they, they're they're just hanging around because they feel sorry for us and our shitty pot. <laughs> I I will accept their pity uh, listens. I pity listens. <laughs> pity. Are good. Speaking of pity listens. <laughs> 25,000 downloads. Wow. We hit 25,000 downloads today. 24,998. Pity. Yeah, the other two are us. <laughs> no, I pity us. Yeah. I pity. No, that is just... That's amazing. That is, it just, I get, like, I'm so heartwarmed by it. Like, right? it's just, we're just two dudes who uh, talk about this stuff and always found it fascinating and, yep. you know. Yeah, funny, huh? A couple months later, we have 25,000 downloads. downloads. That's pretty mind-boggling. Yeah. So you can subscribe to us uh, on your favorite podcast directory. Apparently some people have, uh, like iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or at our host, Podbean. Uh, they're pretty great. Uh Lots of you have left five-star reviews and comments. Some people have less, left a four-star. One person left a four-star review. They <laughs> well, said, it's still, it's still pod. They said, said we, we chat too much. Well, hey. But this is what we do. It's, it's, it's good feedback, and I love all the feedback, but in the same vein, you have to you have to be true to you. Yeah. And not everybody will. This is what we set out to do. Yeah, so. not everybody will like it, and that's okay. Yep. It's, it's absolutely okay. okay. Absolutely. If you still give us four stars... Like, bully to you. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. And, Thank you very much. And just hit mute when you hear me start to talk. Yes. And you'll save yourself a lot of time. Pretty much. You can re-edit this and just have me talking. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, if you want to leave a review, every little bit helps. And speaking of cool people from our uh, closed group, Adam P. from Australia uh, left us a little voicemail. So here it is. Good day, mates. No, no, I'm Adam P. That's not it. Oh, okay. That's Scott. Okay, we'll really play it here. We will really play it. But you know what? Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. G'day, Mike and Scott. Adam here from Melbourne, Australia. Just dropping a line to let you guys know I love your show. My favorite episode so far has got to be the Halifax Explosion. Keep up the awesome work and cheers from down under.